Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. April 19th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, back after a couple weeks of hiatus, which has been glorious, I must say. And in fact, I may end up taking another couple weeks as I approach another deadline with respect to the project that I've told you guys about. If you go to the program notes at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see at the top of those notes the link to the description of the project. As you might know, I am helping cartoonist Bosch Faustin adapt a script from Atlas Shrugged so that he can create a graphic novel based on Ayn Rand's magnum opus. So this is no small task. It's a fun task but it's very absorbing and consuming. Uh, in terms of an update, I promised some people who were asking some kind of an update. And we just submitted a chunk of work and another chunk of work this last week and got feedback right away from the editor, positive feedback right away from the editor, responses from her, suggestions for further edits and things like that. And those were all really good. So, I'm really happy with how it's going. There's still more work to be done. And as I said, I may choose to take another couple weeks off uh, in the future. So I'll keep you guys posted about that. The other link that I have at the beginning of the program notes is my Instagram. And if you also want to know, just kind of, so my brain is in the project and my brain is also just kind of absorbing life in ways that you can follow a little bit over on Instagram. One of the things I've been doing, I've got a couple dogs. A lot of people know I've, we used to be involved in dog agility and my partner in dog agility, Boo, she's now 14 and a half, but I'm still walking her or dragging her around the block each day. And then I've got her niece Kay, who probably could be a great agility dog but unfortunately she's just a pet for me but she's an awesome walk companion she'll run with me when I want to whatever you know if I'm in the mood to run she'll run 
Uh, I'm training her, even though I'm not really training her for anything. I train her to deal with distractions and stuff. So we have a good time. But as I walk around, I'm just taking pictures of all of my neighbor's flowers. And you can see that work over there. I actually have a tattoo artist now following me on Instagram. So it's quite possible that some rose picture or other flower picture that I've taken is going to wind up as body art on some poor soul. Jean in the chat room says that she loves my plant and flower photos. Thank you, Jean. I, I mean, I love doing them. It's uh, it, it just kind of evolved. You know, I just started taking pictures of, uh, you know, these phones are so great. Anywhere you are, if there's something you want to take a picture of, suddenly you can capture it. It's dangerous because then you get this backlog of tons of photos and you should be editing them and deleting them. It gives you another thing to do. But I love doing it, and I take the best ones and and post them over on Instagram. So if you're not on Instagram, that's one reason to be on Instagram. But you can also follow other interesting people, and we'll talk about one of those later today. So as I said, don'tletitgo.com, that's where you'll find the program notes. you also see the title of today's show, None of the Above, inspired by a Duran Duran song of that name, sometime in the early 90s. I can't remember the exact year. There was an album that they had called The Wedding Album. And that was an album in which Warren, Warren Carrillo, is that his name? Warren Carrillo. He was the guitarist for Missing Persons. He joined them for that album and co-wrote with them the wonderful song, the very melodic song, Ordinary World. But there's also this great song, None of the Above. And I'll tell you what made me think of it in a moment here. So anyway, check out the program notes, don'tletitgo.com. If you look over those notes and there's something on there that you'd like to talk to me about, you can call in. The number at which to do so is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. If you do want to actually talk and not just call in to listen, then you'll want to press the one button and then I'll go ahead and bring you on and we can chat as well. As you see though on the program notes, I've got plenty to keep us busy. You can also of course chime in here in the chat room. Freedom Breeze also saying that she likes my flower pictures. Thank you. Uh, It's it's fun. There's other stuff too, obviously. What do I do? Take all kinds of weird selfies and the food that I eat and just random stuff. So if I'm on a hiatus and you just want to see a little bit of what I'm up to, you can follow on Instagram and and see a taste over there. Twitter as well. Twitter as well. So this is how I thought of none of the above. And this is how I got inspired to come back from the hiatus, maybe sooner than I would have otherwise. Like I said, I might end up going on another one for a couple of weeks. But the other day, the Pope gave his Easter address. I'm not even going to bother trying to pronounce the Italian name of it, but he gave his Easter address and I'm actually not going to navigate to it because the sound comes on right away. But in the Easter address, he was calling for a cease to violence and in effect, a reaffirmation of faith. And of course, as an objectivist, the obvious thought that came to my mind was that it's this faith that in part is the cause of the violence. And so how ironic is it that here is the Pope calling for a cease to violence and at the same time asserting the very 
basis of the faith. In fact, in the address, he talks about, you know, the idea that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And if that is not something that requires an act of faith to believe, I don't know what is. Quoting from the English translation of his speech, he says, if Christ were not raised, Christianity would lose its very meaning. The whole mission of the church would lose its impulse, for this is the point from which it first set out and continues to set out ever anew. So this idea that somebody died and then was risen from the dead in order to become the supernatural, you know, super powerful, perhaps omnipotent, omnipotent and omniscient, depending on what you believe, but, you know, certainly more powerful than a human being having powers of a supernatural dimension, the Lord of life and death, as the Pope puts it, you are supposed to believe this, even though there's absolutely no evidence for it. And in fact, that everything that you know, and observe around you contradicts that, that's what you're supposed to believe. Skipping down in the address, he says that the you know the whole message of good news that's being delivered by Catholicism. He says it's no no mere matter of words, but a testimony to unconditional and faithful love. He says it is, it is about leaving ourselves behind and encountering others, being close to those crushed by life's troubles, sharing with the needy, standing at the side of the sick, elderly, and outcast, etc. In other words, altruism putting others above self. And then later he goes on to denounce our strike in Syria. And he also calls for the resumption of negotiations between Israelis and the Palestinians. And, you know, again, if you are, and I've talked about this on the show many times, if you're calling for Israelis to negotiate with Palestinians, you are calling with you know, calling for Israelis to compromise with people whose premise is that you should no longer exist at all, right? Palestinians, they don't want Israel to exist at all. They want Israel wiped off the map. How in the world are you supposed to negotiate with such a person? And if you are the Pope and you are calling for such negotiations to take place, you are in effect siding with the evil of the Palestinians on this issue. So this is the message of peace and love that is being sent out by the Pope. So when I I thought of this, of course, I thought of none of the above. And I I think also probably in my mind stirring around was the thing I'll talk about next, which is Trump saying I'm my own strategist and then my other association with that. So, you know, I have, I have my mind that's percolating these things. It's a little strange, but immediately I thought of the, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the Ayn Rand song, the Duran Duran song, none of the above. And, Earlier, I had called up the lyrics, but in effect, he says, you know, that freedom puts his faith, you know, to the extent that he has freedom, free will, maybe, faith in none of the above. And he lists, you know, among the things he doesn't have faith in, money, power, and holy roads. And what we'll talk about today is the power and the the holy roads. Uh, You know, he he talks about the fact that maybe someday we're going to learn about the nature of life and reality. And if we do, he says, I want to be there to kick at the answer. You know, he he wants to know these answers more than anybody, but he does not have faith in in a holy sense about these things. 
and it, it's it's a great song. It's a, it's a fun song. Lyrics lyrics are something that for a while I kind of set aside the value of because most musicians are hopelessly liberal and they have these horrible political messages in their songs. But in songs like this, where it's primarily about in actually an issue of epistemology, you have faith and none of the above or in other songs where it's about love or psychology or things like that, you can get a tremendous value out of song lyrics. I, I've been mining the Jezebels again recently in terms of song lyric value. They're in the studio, by the way. I heard the Jezebels are in the studio. So I've been listening to them again in, in preparation to get some new music. I'm excited about that. So, um, so yeah, so I thought of none of the above and that we need to to talk about this. And we're going to talk about this in a, little more fundamental way using some words from Ayn Rand, an essay that she wrote. But as I said, another thing that got me thinking about this and, and you know, it got me mad, right? Um, when, when I saw some headline, there was a headline quoting the Pope, you know, his anti-violence message and his, it was, it was, it juxtaposed the call for faith and the call against violence within this translated quotation that I couldn't exactly find. Uh, within the text of the speech that I that I have here that I gave you the link to, the the exact way that it was stated in the headline didn't seem to be in, in the speech, but it got me angry because, of course, we saw on Palm Sunday, we've got ISIS attacking Christians in Egypt brutally while they're worshiping and everything. And this is because of faith. So, you know, here he is calling for a renewed affirmation of faith, and it's faith that's causing this violence that he thinks he can ask for a, a stop to consistently, and he and he just can't. So I thought of the title, and I, I did everything I could to not announce my title on Sunday, on Easter, because I wanted to be respectful to my Christian friends, because... I do have Christian friends and I don't want to criticize their faith. You know, I'm, I'm an atheist, but I've never been one of these militant atheists who goes out there and, you know, criticizes all the time. But when you see violence that is a result of faith, and we've seen a couple terrorist attacks here domestically this week as well, Fresno yesterday, guys go out and shout Allah Akbar and kill people in the name of Allah and and then to see the Pope call for an end of violence in the name of faith. It, it, you know, it does, it, it makes me very upset. And as I said, I'm going to dig into a little bit of Ayn Rand and, and read you a passage from her on this very issue. I've got a couple calls over here on the switchboard. I want to make sure that nobody's there trying to talk yet. No, there isn't. Like I said, if you do want to chime in, Go ahead and hit the one button, and it'll tell me that you're in the queue, not just to listen, but also to talk. Um, so as I said, the other thing that I had percolating in my brain up to this point was Donald Trump, when he was asked to comment about Steve Bannon. Bannon was demoted in some way, I gather. He's not as much of a strategist as he used to be. And Trump goes out there and pronounces, oh, that's okay, because I'm my own strategist. And again, the weird way my brain works, the first thing that I thought of were these wonderful French feminists, and they went to a Muslim conference, this is some years ago, 
and uh, so there's some conference, all these imams and Muslims talking about all these horrible things about their ideology, their oppressive, totalitarian, backwards ideology. They're having a conference about it. And these French women go in their topless. They always run around topless, these French feminists. And they wrote on their bodies, on their torsos, I am my own prophet. <laughs> and they storm the stage at this conference. Just wonderful. So, you know, Trump, basically, I am my own strategist, given that I don't trust the way that his mind works and that I don't believe he acts on principle in any way, shape or form. I do feel that you're flying blind if Trump is his own strategist in a certain way, you know, at the very best, he's some kind of pragmatist, but what does a pragmatist do? He goes for quote, whatever works and what works is nothing that he articulates very clearly. You know, when I tried to dig into William James and find out what James thought works, what is his standard of the good? The good is to satisfy demand. So for Trump, it's going to be to satisfy his own demand. You know, what is this? So it's basically flying blind. And so when these French women have as an answer to the imams and the imams call for faith in Allah, they say, no, I am my own prophet. So much better. So I'd have the French feminists, I think, for president over over Donald Trump myself. So I threw out there my little tweet for you guys. I am my own prophet is better than I am my own strategist. So, yeah, this is part of what was percolating. Rob in the chat room, quoting me, militant atheists who want to criticize all the time. He says that explains the appeal of skepticism. He, with with respect to skepticism, right? Um, you know, you can. I want I want you to be a little more clear about what you what you're saying there with it. But skepticism, it made me think of some of the introductory part of Rand's essay, Faith and Force, that I'm going to quote from later. And she was talking about, and we could talk about whether this is still as true today as when she was writing, but people want to be reinforced in the idea that there are no answers. That was what she was observing. Now, what we're seeing now is, I guess, probably half the population is still wanting to be reinforced in the idea that there is no answer, you know, there are no answers. And then the other part is seeking a mystical answer, a supernatural answer. And that's some of the religious right with Christians. And then there's also, of course, the more disturbing faction that's going over to Islam. More and more, we're seeing the effects of that. Oh, it enables them to say, I doubt your belief. Mm. I'm gonna I'm still gonna need you, I think, to to elaborate more. It could be that my brain is in a different place, Rob. And Rob, you should call in sometime. I don't think you've ever called in. One time you should call in. I would like to talk to you. I use stories that you give me all the time, and it would be great if you could, if you're able to call in. Uh, you know the number, Rob, but it's 760-888-5817. And then we could have a conversation. You could tell me exactly what it is that you mean. So the book that I'm going to, and I actually didn't put the link to the book in the program notes, but if you do buy the book, if you haven't purchased the book before and you want to go through my handy-dandy Amazon link, I won't mind at all. 
Yeah, I do. I populate those links with my own little Amazon code. So if you shop through my little Amazon links, you support my show and you don't pay any extra. So it's no sacrifice for you. Uh, in the essay, Faith and Force, which is in the book, Philosophy, Who Needs It, Rand talks about explicitly this idea of faith and force being interconnected, being, as she says, corollaries. And I'm going to quote from her here a bit at length. She says, I have said that faith and force are corollaries and that mysticism will always lead to the rule of brutality. The cause of it is contained in the very nature of mysticism. Reason is the only objective means of communication and of understanding among men. When men deal with one another by means of reason, reality is their objective standard and frame of reference. But when men claim to possess supernatural means of knowledge, no persuasion, communication, or understanding are possible. Why do we kill wild animals in the jungle? Because no other way of dealing with them is open to us. And that is the state to which mysticism reduces mankind, a state where, in the case of disagreement, men have no recourse except to physical violence. And more, no man or mystical elite can hold a whole society subjugated to their arbitrary assertions, edicts, and whims without the use of force. Anyone who resorts to the formula, quote, it is so because I say so, end quote, will have to reach for a gun sooner or later. Communists, like all materialists, are neo-mystics. It does not matter whether one rejects the mind in favor of revelations or in favor of conditioned reflexes. The basic premise and the results are the same. End quote. Rob in the chat room is saying, yes, he'd have to call in to explain himself fully. Yeah, so if you cannot deal with somebody by means of reason, then you're going to end up having to deal with them by means of force. I mean, you could try to stir emotions up in them, right? You can try to get them all whipped up into an emotional frenzy, but emotions are a product of cognition. So somewhere in there, you're going to have to be appealing to a thought process within a person, even to generate an emotion in them. So you're not going to be able to just stir up an emotion directly either. You need to appeal to a thought process. If all you're doing is you're saying, my God said it, therefore it must be true, and therefore you must do as I say, if you can't get that person to agree with you, to have the same faith as you do, because again, you're not presenting them any reason, you're presenting them with a religious doctrine, then the only way you're going to be able to get your way, so to speak, is, is by using force. And increasingly we are seeing people using force to get their way in the modern world. And it's either because of actual religious faith or it's the more secular calls for a faith-like process with respect to environmental causes and, and other leftist causes as well. They use a similar type of, uh, of methodology. Okay. So Rob is finishing up, but I do, I think you should call in Rob. You should if you want to, and we, we can have the discussion on that. So here we have, we have a pope calling for an increase in faith, where it is faith, actually, that is the basis for a lot of the violence that we're seeing in the world today. Uh, some of the other stories that we're going to be looking at have to do with faith in particular, 
Erdogan's power grab that just happened over this last weekend as well. The people who are voting for him, you know, ratifying the power that he's been grabbing already and giving him additional power for the future. These people are doing it because they are true believers in Islam. A lot of them are doing it. We don't know how many of them are actually doing it because probably the election was rigged. We know that a lot of opponents to the measure were, you know, pressured using force in in Turkey. So there's some scary stuff going on in the world. And it's because of this idea that people are supposed to take things on faith apart from any type of evidence. And, you know, conversely as well, if you're going to leave people free, if you have a free country, what is going to win out? You're going to have reason. So what we can expect here in the United States, as we have our government becoming more and more powerful, reason is not going to win out. It's going to give way to mysticism of the various varieties. It could be a more, you know, sort of material mysticism of the left, or it could be a religious mysticism of the right, but we're seeing elements of both in our country right now. You know, the thing that came to my mind with respect to the left most starkly are the recent attempts to crack down on free speech on campus where the leftists are actually getting physically violent about it. They've decided that they give up entirely on using reason to persuade people of their point of view and, and, you know, they're taking matters into their own hands. They're becoming vigilante censors, as, as I call them. So, okay, over here in the chat room, not, not a reaction to this. Maybe people weren't as upset about it as I was. But, you know, again, if you can imagine, here we are on Easter. It's only a week after the horrible attacks on Christians in Egypt at the hands of ISIS. And here's the Pope calling for more of this very same thing. You know, he thinks he's got a different flavor of faith and that that somehow makes it good, but it's just not. The other thing that was emphasized in in the essay, and it bears repeating, is altruism, this idea of putting others over self that is so prevalent today, and and it's behind any of the horrible political measures that we've been fighting, you know, for the government to to take over health care, you know, to redistribute wealth and all sorts of ways, as well as spying on us and everything else, this idea of altruism, putting others above self, can be justified only using mysticism. There is no actual reason-based secular argument that holds up for putting others above self. You're supposed to somehow have a mystic understanding of the collective of humanity or something like that on a secular level. But it still ends up being mystical in nature at that point. But more commonly, what do we have now in the White House? We have someone who is at least not able to deny and is happy to ride on the coattails of people who have religious faith. So uh, we've seen that in operation. Uh, I mean, what's happened to the appeal to Obamacare, by the way, the repeal of Obamacare? I know that Ted Cruz the other day made some sort of half-hearted renew call to get this done, but everybody else is focused on foreign policy. It's like completely out of the consciousness of everyone now. Obamacare is strapping us all to each other. And, you know, in this, in this collective, nobody's doing anything about it. 
Okay, so let's go on to the the, uh, the next topic. So I've got faith, right? Don't put your faith in the holy road. And now I want to talk about power. You know, again, Simon LeBon says, you know, power is something that he also chooses to be free of, that he doesn't, you know, freedom of, you know, faith from this power. So what is the political power? One of the things that the New York Times has been railing on lately is the fact that people connected to Trump, members of Trump's own family, have a lot of business ties and that it's somehow inappropriate for them to have ties in private business while they also have political influence in Washington. This has been a big concern of New York Times. And it is, in today's context, a real concern, perhaps. But why is it a real concern? Latest headline, I just grabbed one today at random, but this has been a constant campaign that I've seen. I've, you know, I glance at the New York Times each day. And over the last couple of weeks, you keep seeing headline after headline after headline. They just keep talking about the various Trump family's connections to business and implying that there's all these opportunities for corruption. Latest headline is Ivanka Trump's global reach undeterred by a White House job. Starts out, Ivanka Trump calls her, her father a homebody. If it were up to him, he'd seldom leave New York, she once wrote. By contrast, she has been her family's leading globalist, doing deals around the world in her father's name and her own. Ever since her father took office, her own fashion brand has continued to look abroad, filing four new trademarks in Canada and the Philippines, according to New York Times analysis of trademark records. Continued activity, they say, is a tricky territory for Ms. Trump's new job as White House advisor. While she stepped down from both of her own fashion company and from the Trump organization and put her brand in a trust, she has not given up her financial control, an unusual situation to navigate now that she is subject to federal ethics rules on conflicts of interest. So, you can count on the New York Times riding this horse of whether there is a conflict of interest when the Trump family engages in their business endeavors or financially benefits from the businesses, even if they put them in the trust. They're probably going to keep on this throughout the administration. And then the question is, why is it a problem? Why is this even an issue that the New York Times can be spilling ink on? It's because the government has so much power insofar as they've got the power to pick winners and losers in the realm of business, then yes, it is a problem that someone who has government power also has extensive ties in the business world, but it would not be otherwise. What we do know is that the editors at the New York times are perfectly happy with government having control over all these things. What they don't like is they don't like having somebody who is successful in business and who is reluctant to completely disengage and not get the benefits of all the things that they've achieved, right? That's what the Trumps are doing. The Trumps are saying, hey, they've earned all of this. Now, whether they have or not, we could talk about on another day. But, you know, suppose through their business acumen, they've earned a whole lot of money. They have a whole lot of assets. They want to continue to benefit from those to the extent that they can and then come in and do a political job. Shouldn't they be able to? What the New York Times wants is they want the people in political power to 
probably be not accomplished business people. They'd probably prefer that. People who are accomplished business people would respect businessmen and respect their right to keep the things that they've produced, you know, keep the value that they've produced. Anyway, they're uncomfortable with it. They want government to continue to have this control. And yet here you see, you know, the, the problems that can arise from it. There are real problems, of course. And we saw that with the Clintons. There was all, you know, the, they go through this. Of course, they wouldn't dig into all of the Clintons' dealings with their foundation and the political pool that people were buying via the, the nonprofit foundation. Probably not because it's a nonprofit, right? This is so much worse because this is a for-profit business. But why does this exist? This exists because government just has too much power. Oh, Mark in the chat room is giving me an answer to my question about health care. Trump and Munchen said that they are planning the health care reform before the tax reform, which is depressing because we might not get either. I'm questioning whether we're going to get anything, anything from this guy. I just, I just really don't know that we are. You know, what are we going to get? The thing that, I, you know, you actually worry about is because he is his own strategist and because he seems to be quite hair trigger and because we'll talk about it the other day, he called up Erdogan to congratulate him that we're going to have somebody who is reckless with his power and might actually start World War III and get us all blown up before we can enjoy our lives. So um, that's what I actually worry about. Also that we're not going to get any of those other things that supposedly he promised us. So, um, so that's one. And then in terms of another story illustrating the excess of government power and, you know, again, Simon LeBon, if I was able to talk to him again, I'm sure that there's a lot of government power that he would embrace if you've not seen, I should have actually, I should have put a link to this in the program notes, but I have a post at my blog. And if you Google was Simon LeBon influenced by Ayn Rand, you'll find this post. It's the only one that talks about Simon LeBon and Ayn Rand probably on the whole internet. And I met Simon LeBon and I got to ask him the question because, you know, Barbara Brandon years ago asserted that he was influenced by Ayn Rand. I asked him and he said that, Jim Morrison, he was probably doing this just to mess with me, I swear. He, he, I had this funny interchange with him, but he said that Jim Morrison was more of an influence on him than Ayn Rand. That was scary. And then he did go on to say, though, which I liked, that he really liked her writing, although he disagreed with her ideas. And I think he does share a lot of sense of life with Ayn Rand, and that's part of the reason that I've you know, got these tastes. I like Duran Duran, Jezebel's lead singer of Jezebel's also influenced by Ayn Rand. I think that there's something in the subconscious there that is coming through in these guys' music and, and lyrics that I'm, you know, that I'm attracted to. But in any event, uh, some of the power that is, you know, possessed by today's politicians, I don't think Simon Le Bon, if you asked him explicitly, that he'd want them to give it up. Or anything, but I'm sure that a lot of these things that I'm talking about here scares him a little bit. Now, what he would say probably with Ivanka Trump is, yeah, it's really troubling and it's good that the New York Times is staying on them. But the fundamental problem is not that Ivanka Trump has business dealings and it's not even that 
she may end up abusing the power that she has. I'm not even, you know, she seems like a nice person as far as I can tell. I don't know that she's going to abuse her power. The problem is that the power is there in the first place, capable of being abused. Years ago, I read Bastiat's The Law, and he talks about this idea that the more power you give the government, the, you know, the more that it is open to the pressure from lobbyists and special interest groups and everything else. He had a different way of saying it, but none of this would matter. It wouldn't matter whether Ivanka Trump has extensive business dealings anywhere if the government didn't have any power to pick winners and losers in business the way that it does now. It's that power that needs to go away. But the New York Times don't want that. They don't want that to go away. They want the business dealings. There, you know, there were some headlines from the New York Times, and it was just how much money they had. That, that was the whole headline. The whole, and I can't even remember how much money it was. It was some huge amount that I can't even fathom. But it doesn't matter. It's just you're supposed to think badly of Ivanka Trump because of it was like Ivanka and, and uh, her brother or was it her husband, too? I can't remember um, how much money they had. And just stating that you're supposed to think badly of them and you're supposed to think, oh, well, if they have that much money, then therefore they're bad for government. That's the New York Times for you. And as I said, it's only because government has so much power. That's nothing that the New York Times wants to take away. Where the New York Times has been pretty good is in criticizing Erdogan's latest power grab. But we can talk a little bit about why they would be good on this and and bad on the other issue of of Ivanka Trump. The latest story of, of what's going, as you know, on Sunday, I don't I don't know how many of the Turkish people actually voted for this. The figure that I saw yesterday was that it was a narrow margin, 51 point some odd percent voted to give Erdogan more power. In essence, what it did, and I'm not going to go into details. In essence, it ratified the unconstitutional power grabs that he's already been making and gave him more power for the future. And what sort of power, the type of power that takes away checks and balances so that he's able to do things unfettered by any other branch of his government. And is that a big deal? I mean, some people would like to give Trump all kinds of absolute power. They think he's wonderful. And they think that he's going to save us from all the things that ail us. And if he just had more power, then everything would be wonderful. But you cannot have this idea that you're just going to give all the power to one branch of government and hope to retain a government that operates on a principle. And what do we want our government to operate on the principle of? We want our government to protect our individual rights. It's in our Declaration of Independence that our government should protect lives, you know, our life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we're not going to have a government that is designed and that consistently protects us if there is not a system of checks and balances because there's too much opportunity for corruption, for abuse of power. And we're going to look at some examples of of that in just a little bit here in the realm of, of privacy in particular. But yeah, so here's Erdogan grabbing power, getting rid of the checks and balances in his country, setting up a dictatorship in effect, you know, sending him well along that path toward dictatorship. And the New York Times is being critical about it. 
which which is a good thing. The latest development, the electoral board in Turkey has rejected appeals on the referendum. It says Turkey's electoral board, uh, electoral board say that 12 times fast, uh, rejected on Wednesday appeals to the, it says to from, there's actually a typo in the New York Times. Yeah. Um, from the main opposition parties to annul the referendum granting President Erdogan sweeping new powers, the board said in the statement. Opposition parties, including the main opposition CHP and the pro-Kurdish HDP, had called on the electoral board to annul Sunday's vote, which was narrowly won by the yes camp because unstamped ballot papers were included. HDP, CHP, and Vatan Party appeals regarding the April 16th referendum were discussed separately, and as a result of evaluations, the appeals were rejected with 10 votes against and one vote in favor, the electoral board said. So that route for appeal, as far as I know, these opposition parties are going to try to pursue other means of appeal, but given that the referendum itself has eliminated various checks and balances, I doubt that they're going to have much success. And look at this, 10 votes against and one vote in favor. And it was a 51 point something percent. And as the New York Times reported before, and I'd shared this story, 51%, perhaps some corruption in the count anyway, because of these unstamped ballot papers, et cetera. And also leading up to the election, there was tremendous pressure against the opponents tremendous pressure, physical pressure. Things would just happen to people who were giving speeches against this referendum and stuff. Physical force was used against them. And nonetheless, with the threats and with um, the corruption that appears to have taken place, they can only eke out a 51 point some odd percent. And then, you know, the other question is, how in the world do they have it set up that you can make constitutional amendments based on a democratic ballot measure where you get only 51% of the vote? That's horrible. And what have you got there? You've got government power over any sort of principle of, of protecting individual rights. I've got a call and I'm going to go ahead and grab it. Oh, I was just about to grab it. And as soon as I went to grab it, it disappeared. So if you were the one who was online on hold, go ahead and call back again, and I'll go ahead and, and speak to you. Okay, wait, I think I got the person online again. Let me go ahead and grab it. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Uh, hi, Amy. This is Waldo. Hi, Waldo. Good to speak to you. How are you? Good speaking with you, too. I'm glad you made it back on the show uh, this week. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I was calling to talk about Ergodon. Uh-huh. And how 51% uh, voted to give him dictatorial type powers, and yeah. uh, the point I just wanted to make was how, which I think you were getting to uh, just now, was that the dangers of having a democracy and saying that oh, if everything is a democracy, then everything will be great, because in a democracy, as you can see, people can vote themselves into a dictatorship if they don't yeah. have. Um, a republic and and laws to protect them from something like this. So every time there's a referendum for for politicians to get some sort of mandate, it's usually for something horrible like this, where they'll justify 
um, violating rights by saying, well, everyone voted or 51% voted for this to happen. Right. No, it, it, it's true. And, and they're not guided by or restrained by any sort of principle. And, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of the structure of Turkish government. There, there are options with respect to how to set up a system of checks and balances. But one thing for sure is that it should not be possible to amend a constitution, you know, in a a constitution, you would assume it would contain the details of the system of checks and balances that is necessary to make sure that the government over the long term continues to protect rights, right? Uh, That's in this system. You should not be able to amend that by a mere majority vote of the citizens. Right, just 51% of the like. It's if it's just one percent, like you could why there could be up for about like fifty one percent take one hundred percent of the other forty nine percent money or something like that. That could go. Why not? Like if you can vote for this, why can't you vote for that? Right. There's no limits. But again, we don't. I mean, we haven't really studied the Turkish uh, constitution or anything to know like what ex- what exactly there was to keep. Um, they'll keep the system as it was. Maybe it was not a robust, um, robust enough system to keep the government as is. And we do know that Erdogan has been, in particular, trying to um, weaken the government enough so that he can take full control for a few years now. So this is, just seems like the final step for him to like somehow legitimize himself to the rest of the world by saying like, well, 51% of the population voted for this. So it's not like I took power. They voted me in. And somehow he thinks that that makes it legitimate. Right. Right. No. And, and, you know, this, I don't, I don't know, like I said, all the ins and outs, but what we could say also about our own government is that even though our founding fathers were careful to set up our constitutional republic in a way that had a robust system of checks and balances over a couple centuries we have seen right that this is eroded and it's very disturbing um, i mean it, yeah i agree sadly it's happening here as well not so as quickly. much slower degree than yeah, slow more slowly than Turkey, but definitely the same thing is happening here. And we can even see how most people in the United States say this is a democracy, this is a democracy, and like they put yes. democracy as like the ultimate ideal instead of like what we really are, which is a republic with a constitution, with laws, and a system, and and democracy is just a vo- way of voting for representatives it's not a way of governing and but that confusion in the population i think says a lot about why 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 um the degradation in in politics is occurring yes definitely um in you know donald trump's inauguration day speech one of the things that alarmed me is that there was no reference at all to the principle of individual rights, the you know this is what our government is supposed to be founded upon, and nothing, nothing from him in, in his inauguration day address. It was just all about satisfying the demands of the various groups that got him in office. 
very pragmatic style. So um, now I've got someone um, in the chat room the, talking about refreshing things and stuff. I don't know why. Uh, I don't. I don't know. If, I mean, obviously, you and I are talking to each other, and we can hear each other. I don't know if other people are having a hard time hearing or not. Might be having a. Oh no. Question. Yeah, I'm not uh, sure. You, maybe you and I are having a private I'm not conversation. On the chat, so I, that would be. Well, that would be uh, strange if I was. Be, well, um, I was on the queue, but then the um, then the call fell through. And then I, I tried calling again just to hear. I was like, well, oh well, I'll just listen. I won't like press the number one again. So I don't know if that maybe. And then you, and I was like, oh, unmuted. And I'm like, what? I, I didn't press one this time. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I, I roped I roped you in, Waldo. I I roped you in to talk to me a little bit. So <laughs> so the Erdogan thing it, it depressed you as much as it did me that people. You know, again, we don't know actually how many people voted for this, but the idea that you would willingly vote away a system of checks and balances, even for somebody good. But here's this guy who's been grabbing power without any constitutional authority for quite a while, apparently, and they're going to go ahead and vote to give him more. That's frightening. Yeah, yeah. What made me angry was just seeing this, um, like, because I keep thinking about how people think like, well, everyone's just like us. We all want freedom. We all want to, to certain things, but like, no, like literally you can see people voting themselves into dictatorship in, mm-hmm. in other parts of the world. So not everyone shares your ideas and you shouldn't, and people shouldn't assume that they, that they do. And, right. and I think that's a problem. Sorry, you're hearing maybe a video that is automatically starting. I was going to ask you, Waldo, what do you think of Trump calling to congratulate Erdogan? <laughs> um, I honestly did not read too much about this, but I thought it was really funny if it if he did because it just I think he doesn't. I think Trump doesn't read like at all. Or it doesn't have any knowledge of almost any basic thing because I feel like this knowledge about Erdogan being sort of already dictatorial in Turkey, sh- he should know this. Like this is, pr- I mean, a pretty basic thing about a, an important world leader in an important region of the world, which is having a lot of problems, and yet somehow, like I, ca- I can't believe, like. I can't believe he consciously knows that this person is almost a dictator and then congratulate him. I think right. it must be that he has no clue. But that's even a war- I feel like that's almost a worse sign that he has no clue because, like, he's the president. How could he have no clue about this? But the only reason I can think of him sending a congratulations would be if he had no clue and he's just doing a blanket, like, congratulations. So, so I don't know what's you know, worse. I have a I have a seminar that I've been teaching, a libertarian theories of the law seminar, and I have one student in there who is a big Trump supporter. He actually wears the cap, you know, make America great again to class sometimes. And I asked him, I said, What you know, what do you make of this Erdogan that Trump calls Erdogan to congratulate him? This is horrible. And he put it in the whole context of Oh, well, Trump is this businessman negotiator, and he's going to start 
from the point of being very friendly, but then he's going to basically tell Erdogan what he wants him to do, and Erdogan's going to comply because Erdogan knows that Trump means business, and he's not messing around, and, and so this is just all the initial act. It's part of business, but I don't see this as, oh, like just business, that what Trump is doing is he is sanctioning a power grab that eliminates checks and balances, and and it sends a horrible message in, in my view. I wouldn't. I don't want my president calling to congratulate people who have engaged in an unjust power grab. Right. I agree, but does Trump even know about checks and balances? I don't think he understands them. Like I said, there was no mention of the principle of rights anywhere in his inauguration address. That he's, that's his a number one job is to protect the rights of American citizens, and that principle just did not appear at all. So it's it's depressing. Like I said, you know, if if you see me taking another hiatus, you'll know why. This is depressing stuff, right? <laughs> Please don't. Uh, I need to hear someone complain about these things too. Oh, okay. So I could just come on and complain and talk about how ridiculous it is and go, na 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 I'm working on Atlas Shrugged and just tell you how happy I am to be doing that. And that's that's cool well, with you, Waldo, if I do that. <laughs> well, I'd be happy to hear about um, everything you're doing with the Atlas Shrugged comic, but um, I also like hearing your perspective on world events, too. And uh, sadly, because of the world we live in, it has to be complaints about world events. Uh, because of all the bad things that um, keep happening. Um, and I think, and um, I don't know, you know, we need that other objectivist perspective out there. Yeah. Now, I would say that in general, Yaron is a more uplifting, optimistic person than than I am sometimes about stuff. And so sometimes I need to listen to Yaron to have him not think, or have me not think that the world is going to end soon and, and stuff like that. But since I've been off the last couple of weeks, I've, I've been in a much better state and I'm just kind of coming in to, to talk about some things that I cannot help not talking about. United was another one. I had to say something about United because yeah, United did a very bad thing, but that guy, he trespassed by staying there when they asked him to leave and a lot of people just kind of forgot that piece of the puzzle. So, yeah, every so often I'm not going to be able to resist. I'm going to have to come in and say something about something, and that's what's going to keep me here providing podcasts for you, Waldo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, well, thank you. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I listen to your own Brooke as well, but um, it's always nice to have another voice because you, I like how you have, like, these, these points that you put up on Don't Let It Go on Instagram and you, like, outline what's going to talk in the show. And it's like, there's a lot of variety in there that sometimes Yaron Brooke, like, devotes one show to, like, one topic or two topics versus your show, like, has a lot of different topics in one show. And, like, you, you, you can go back and forth. So I think that's a good, that's yeah, a good alternative. But, I mean, the way, the way I look at it is this, right? Yaron has so much experience speaking on objectivism and applying objectivism to every topic under the sun that I just do not have. And what I do is I I compensate in two ways. I have my quirky brain that comes up with associations that I think people find interesting or entertaining. Okay, good. If you share that, that's great. And then the other is just by throwing a bunch of research at you guys. And 
if I can give you guys a bunch of interesting and valuable things to look at and a little bit of a unique perspective on them, then I'm, I'm happy and entertain and sort of commiserate and all, all those things that I try to do. So that's, that's how I look at it. I mean, I think also a lot of people might not have like, you know, like, it's like these, this is the topics that you may pick out are, something that likely objectivists would be interested in and like would like to hear a conversation about, but not a lot of people have objectivist like friends to hear them talk about it. I mean, I guess on Facebook you can, but like maybe where you live so you can really have a conversation or hear people having conversations about these topics. So it's good to hear someone talk about it. And then when someone else calls into your show, you hear like you get a new good conversation out of it. And it, it, I think it helps, people feel like maybe like a personal connection to other people who are objectivists and not just like Facebook objectivist friends. Every, everyone is unique. And uh, to use a phrase that I'm going to quote from Ayn Rand in a little bit here, I have my philosophical equipment is informed by Rand, but of course it's me as well with my whole personality and background and upbringing and psychology and everything else. And so I just, I'm going to bring a unique constellation of things to think about. And if people are enjoying it, I love it. And I, I enjoy doing the show and I'm, I'm grateful also that you call in and, and talk to me as well. Waldo, I'm going to let you go because there's some noise there in the background and I've also got a bunch of notes to get through, but I appreciate okay, it. And ahead. I hope you'll call me again next time. Thanks a lot, Waldo. Okay. I'll keep listening. Okay, great. I'm glad he's going to keep listening. Although with his noise in the background, I don't know how well he can listen here. Um, just Gene in the chat room says, oh, so Trump is going to dictate to Erdogan. Yeah, that's what this guy is trying to tell me. He was trying to tell me that, oh, you know, him calling to congratulate Erdogan is just setting the table, so to speak, for future dealings with Erdogan and that in the future, Trump is going to be able to get what he wants. So the example that the guy gave was uh, that Trump's going to tell Erdogan, I'm going to send a bunch of F-16s over there, and they're going to be at such and such base, and they're going to conduct operations from there, and you're not going to say anything about it. And that Erdogan's just going to comply because he is a smart person. Oh, Tim in the chat room says he's got a question for me. So I'll wait to, to see what that question is as well while I'm navigating back over the program notes that Waldo was talking about on the call that we had just now is they're over at don'tletitgo.com. So if you want to see all the stories that I've got lined up today, then, then you can. So what are we going to now? We go into more about the abuse of power. So we started out with the Holy Rose. Maybe I should have put it in the order of the song, Money, Power, and Holy Roads, Freedom Puts My Faith in None of the Above is the lyric. And we've talked about the Holy Roads first, and now we're going to talk about the power. You, you know what I think about money, right? I think money is fine, and that Laban is wrong to worry about. I mean, you, you don't want to have faith in money. So when I think of faith in money, I think of something that I was working on recently, which was um, there's a wonderful scene in Atlas Shrugged where um, and I, I hate to give spoilers, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a spoiler for about 30 seconds. So tune out for about 30 seconds if you have not read Atlas Shrugged. So here's a, a spoiler. But there's this wonderful scene in which Francisco is going to drop the news 
of the fact that the Ancon- you know, Danconia stock, the Danconia copper stock is going to drop, you know, that it's going to just basically plummet the very next day. And he's giving this news out at James Taggart's wedding. But the premise of the whole thing is that all the people who had invested in his stock had faith, right? They had faith in him and it wasn't based on any observation. And, you know, it was true, of course, and and Francisco talks about this, that he had, or that he and his ancestors had built up such a value in Danconia Copper, and it was a business of a certain nature that couldn't easily be shut down, dismantled. The value couldn't be taken out of it very easily. It would take a very unusual mind to be able to orchestrate the um, extraction of value from this business, this centuries-old business. Um, So there's this great interchange between him and James Taggart and other people at the party about, oh, you know, I'm so grateful that, in essence, you had faith in me and you put my money in, because what does it allow him to do? If he's able to do something to Danconia Copper that makes the stock price plummet all in one day, which is what he did, he's able to destroy the value of all of these looters who are just riding on his coattails. So no, you don't want to have faith in money, uh, but to the extent that Laban is criticizing the possession of money or the quest to earn money in an honest and productive way, which I know that he's doing to some extent, he's, he's a liberal, then no, obviously I reject that. So I've focused more on the Holy Roads and the power. So here we go into power and power my favorite topic to talk about with respect to abuse of political power is of course government surveillance. And I have a number of stories on that. Thanks to Benjamin Shays and Rob Abiera who gave me some stories on that this week. One is from national review and it's Andrew McCarthy. Who's always excellent. Obama political spying scandal. Trump associates were not the first targets. And what McCarthy does in that story is he talks about a, a couple things on his own, and then he goes on to cite Atkinson. But Dennis Kucinich is apparently now a Fox News commentator. Maybe he'll go in and take over her O'Reilly or something, right? Wouldn't that be fun? I don't know if it would. But he posted some sort of post on Fox News about the fact that he had been the victim of government surveillance and and government surveillance of questionable justification because under the Obama administration, when Obama was in power, Kucinich was an opponent of Obama's policy on Libya and found out that some of his phone calls had been recorded and leaked to the Washington Times. Why? Because he had been this opponent Um, and So what they talk about in here is there is a pretext or is it pretense? I always get those two confused, but you know, there's a, there is a a reason that is a plausible good reason that's given for the type of monitoring they're doing, which is legitimate foreign policy concerns. We will monitor, you know, people who are members of enemy governments or even, you know, people who are officials in allied governments. But then the question is, when do they end up abusing that 
and engaging in monitoring that is not justified. So the, the whole point of this is, you know, first of all, is there much evidence that Trump was improperly monitored? Maybe not. But what we do know is that there is a tremendous history within the Obama administration of engaging in unjustified monitoring and also other abuses of, of government power with political motivation. Uh, one of the most disturbing things that's in here is that there's a description of monitoring of Netanyahu and also Ron Dermer, Israel's ambassador to the U.S. They became surveillance targets. Why? Because um, the Obama administration was concerned that Israel was going to undermine the Iran deal. So they're monitoring them. But then apparently what this morphed into was monitoring not just with respect to this foreign policy concern, which I would say is invalid because the Iran deal is a horrible thing and we should never have done it anyway. But assuming you think that that's a legitimate purpose for this monitoring, right? We allies spy on each other. It happens. Writes McCarthy says there was something different about this monitoring initiative. It was not targeted merely at Israeli officials plotting their opposition strategy. Instead, they say that it, quote, also swept up the contents of some of the Israeli officials' private conversations with U.S. lawmakers and American Jewish groups. And this is from Smith. Uh, now, who's the article? Smith. I don't know which Smith. Lee Smith of the Wall Street Journal. He writes, quote, at some point, the administration weaponized the NSA's legitimate monitoring of communications of foreign officials to stay one step ahead of domestic political opponents. And this is according to a pro-Israel political operative who was deeply involved in the day-to-day -day fight over the Iran deal. Again, quoting from this operative, the NSA's collections of foreigners became a means of gathering real-time intelligence on Americans engaged in perfectly legitimate political activism. Activism due to the nature of the issue that naturally involved conversations with foreigners. We begin to notice the White House was responding immediately, sometimes within 24 hours, to specific conversations we were having. And then what Smith of the Wall Street Journal goes on to say about this, he says, this is what systematic abuse of foreign intelligence collection for domestic political purposes looks like. It's intelligence collected on Americans, lawmakers, and figures in the pro-Israel community fed back to the Obama White House as part of its political, not foreign policy, but political operations. So then they go on and, um, okay, so pretext is the word that I want, because he says that, yes, if there is actual Russian interference in American elections, then that is a legitimate basis for intelligence collection. He says it's a compelling one. He says, but even, this is McCarthy, even a compelling rationale can be used pretextually. And so, yes, it, it, was, it was a pretext. And then he goes on to catalog a number of improper monitoring and you know, harassment of journalists and everything else, including Atkinson herself, uh, that was done. And um, there, you know, extensive discussion, again, of the fact that she had forensic experts looking at her personal and work computers, and they concluded that they were, quote, 
accessed by an unauthorized external unknown party on multiple occasions. Was this unknown party the government? The experts say that it was a highly advanced intruder, which, quote, used sophisticated methods to remove all possible indications of unauthorized activity. Moreover, one computer was infiltrated remotely by the use of, quote, new spy software proprietary to a federal agency. Now, Atkinson was a big uh, critic of the Benghazi cover-up. You remember when the Obama administration tried to blame the attacks in Benghazi on a video, a YouTube video, and they even went so far as to prosecute the poor guy who puts this video out on YouTube just to make their cover-up look like it was legitimate. Uh, Atkinson was a big exposer of that and apparently ended up getting some surveillance, some government surveillance as a result. I need to talk to McCarthy because as, and I've met him before, I've talked to him a couple times before, but I'd be interested to know what he thinks of Snowden because the very things that Edward Snowden exposes by our government are things that McCarthy is complaining about here. And yet I wonder if McCarthy is pro Snowden the way that I am, or if he thinks like, you know, John Bolton, John Bolton is an ally of McCarthy on some issues. John Bolton told me that he, any, you know, he was telling other people before this, but I interviewed him. He told me that he thought, Snowden should be tried for treason and executed. I'm hoping that McCarthy's not there because, I mean, what he's talking about in this piece is the very thing that Snowden himself has exposed and that Snowden decided that he had to do exactly what he did in order to expose. We are more aware of what our government does in terms of unjustified surveillance because of Edward Snowden. Uh, Tim in the chat room is giving me a question about UK politics that I'm not equipped to answer, unfortunately. So I'm going to have to go ahead and do some research in in order to answer your question there. I do have a couple of people online. If you do want to talk, you press the one key. Okay. Um, I know that there's some people who just like to call and listen, but if you want to do that, press the one key. Yeah, Cheryl Atkinson says Tim was squeezed out of CBS 60 Minutes due to her focus on Benghazi. Yeah, even CBS couldn't handle it. Although CBS, I guess, was her ally with respect to pointing out and helping her figure out the fact that she was a target of government surveillance. Nonetheless, they ultimately pushed her out. And now today she has a great reputation as an independent journalist. So that's not necessarily such a bad development. It probably gives her a lot more freedom to develop, you know, to pursue her career in the way that that she wants to. Um, So what I'm going to go on to now next is, and actually there's one other follow-up that you should look at as well. It's an addition. It's another element of, of the history of improper government surveillance by the Obama administration that lets you think that, yes, maybe the Obama administration was guilty of improper surveillance of Trump Donald Trump and his associates, you know, it, it's, it's this abuse of power that's the most disturbing and, and how you would draw up the rules exactly so that you would be able to engage in the type of spying that's typically and traditionally done by our government 
whether it be some sort of a hostile foreign nation that we need to try to collect some intelligence data on, or whether it even be an ally, any sort of foreign national. What's happening now is our government is increasingly using that legitimate reason for surveillance as a pretext to sweep up information about Americans. And, you know, our government has so much power, it's using that information for political purposes. And we're seeing that more and more and more. What is the answer? You know, I think there's a twofold answer here. First of all, the government shouldn't have the power to do anything about it, you know, with that information. The information should not be of value to the government because the government should have much less power. Federal government in particular should be mostly focused on protecting us from foreign aggressors. They shouldn't have enough power you know, for example, to interfere in elections and do all sorts of things. Like, for example, have the IRS go after your political opponents. That should not be possible. If that power is not there, then the temptation to try to get information about these people is not going to be there. Um, Tim is talking about Cheryl in the chat room, that she's got her own show on Fox now, and that's awesome, um, called Full Measure. She's She's been really excellent and is worthy of, of support. Um, so what have we got here in terms of other history? We also have the Petraeus scandal as well. And in that case, there was a lot of metadata that was swept up without a warrant of any kind. You know, what is metadata? Again, you've got login records is what they're talking about here, but there's all sorts of metadata, phone numbers that you dial, where you are, you know, GPS will locate you when you dial certain numbers from your cell phone and things like that. All of this stuff is retained ostensibly for a business purpose, right? That your phone company, for instance, it's it's in AT&T's interest or whatever to retain information about what cell phone towers people use when, you know, they're using their service. Those cell phone towers that get more traffic, maybe they need to have upgrades in certain ways. Uh, The cell phone towers that, you know, maybe maybe they're going to get the the actual updates in terms of the new speed, like they go from 4G to LTE or whatever the latest technology is. You know, there's a business purpose, a legitimate business purpose for retaining some of this information, not specifically tied to my identity, but in the aggregate, just collecting statistics about which of their resources are being used the most so that they know where to invest their money. Sure. What the government is increasingly doing is forcing them to retain all of this data and using the fact that they can compel the company to produce this data without a warrant. They're using that to their benefit. So, for example, in the Petraeus scandal, you have web providers retaining login records, and these login records reveal the IP address that the consumer has logged in from. And it says that although, and this is the article that I've got from ACLU.org, it's in the program notes, so I'm quoting from that, Although these records reveal sensitive information, including geolocation data associated with the target, U.S. law currently permits law enforcement agencies to obtain these records with a mere subpoena, no judge required, just a subpoena. 
And why is that? Why is it that U.S. law permits this to happen? I've talked about it uh, many times on my show. It's because of this thing called the third party doctrine, which said that, hey, you know, you shared this information with the third party. You shared the information with Google, with Yahoo, with Microsoft. And therefore, that information is no longer covered by the Fourth Amendment. That information is protected from government intrusion only by statute, only by democracy, only by a vote of the majority. So if a vote of the legislatures says that your information is protected in a certain way, then it is. If not, not. There is no principle requiring probable cause and particularized suspicion before the government can access this data. And this came home to roost in the Petraeus case. Uh, It says, although Ms. Broadwell, who is the, I guess, mistress in the case, she took steps to disassociate herself from at least one particular email account. By logging into other email accounts, she created a data trail that agents were able to use to link the accounts. So the investigation of all this was conducted improperly without a warrant. So there's some details there as well. Again, using government surveillance in an improper way in order to achieve political ends. And that's the Obama administration has a long history of doing this. That was the point of McCarthy's piece. And so therefore, because there is this pattern in practice, it's plausible to think that he went on to engage in improper surveillance of Trump and and Trump's associates as well. Scary. Again, if there was no power to do anything about it, then there wouldn't be the temptation to to do the surveillance in the first place. But what is the other answer to this? The other answer to this is I put the link in the program notes again, and I'll keep spreading it out there because who knows, sometimes there's going to be a person who hasn't listened before and hasn't heard it before. I have an article called Don't Tread on My Metadata. In that article, I talk about how we could get rid of the third-party doctrine that all of this information that you and I, non-criminals, all this information that we share with companies, with third parties, that information would still be protected by the Fourth Amendment, and yet the government would still have the legitimate ability to use secret agents, for example, to infiltrate the mafia and stuff like that. So in that article, I talk about how that could be done using principles of common law. Principles of common law that, for example, Glenn Greenwald wanted to hear. So maybe that's part of the reason that this isn't broadcast out there widely. Everybody wants a legislative solution, but legislatures, they, they, it's the whim of the moment that you're subject to. We need to have principled long-term protection based on individual rights, and we do not have that in privacy at all these days. And one of the consequences is the government abuse of power that they get due to being able to access information. Here's another consequence, and this is something that Edward Snowden has talked about in the last week or so. Thanks to Rob for sending me. Rob sort of lobbed this into my bubble. I had I had a safe space going for the last couple weeks or so. I was in my Atlas Shrug space, and a few things kind of penetrated into the safe space. You know, the United thing. I had to say something about that, and yeah, the Pope. But also, Rob sent me this stuff that Snowden's been talking about, and it's disturbing. It's confirmation of something that I suspected all along, which is that insofar as the government 
is creating backdoors to our technology. It is also leaving us vulnerable to hackers of other kinds. You know, so not only are we being, you know, the subject of surveillance, unjustified government surveillance, our rights are being violated that way. Our government is also failing to protect our rights. It's failing to protect us from criminal surveillance, criminal information gathering, perhaps attempts at identity theft and other sorts of things, protecting, you know, failing to protect us. Why? Because they want to have the back doors open for themselves so that they're able to collect our information without a warrant of any kind, without probable cause, without particular suspicion. They don't want to have to jump through those hoops. So they create this technology. They become aware of vulnerabilities maybe that are already pre-existing within certain things. The, the stories that I've seen have to do with Microsoft. People who use certain Microsoft platforms have been left vulnerable in ways that the government was aware about, you know, aware of, but didn't bother to tell either consumers or Microsoft itself or anybody. Why? Because they love the convenience. They love the convenience. You know, it used to be government wanted information about you that they would have to come to you with a warrant or with a demand for that information. You know, most of your private stuff in the old days was in your house. And so they'd have to knock on your door and present you with a warrant that entitled them to search. And they'd have to have probable cause to believe that on the premises there was evidence of some sort of crime that you committed, you, particularized suspicion. They'd have to have that. And now they can just do these huge, wide sweeps of searches. I talked a few weeks ago about a story in which they were able to search Google, you know, kind of amass these Google searches for an entire town of 50,000 people. No particularized suspicion, whatever. But just go ahead and conduct these broad searches of metadata. It's just metadata, right? And you know that's how this third-party doctrine works. There's certain things that are protected by the Fourth Amendment and certain things aren't. And it's fairly arbitrary, I think, what is and isn't protected. And people try to draw lines in a principled way, but I don't think they can. They need to get rid of this doctrine entirely. They need to put all this back under the Fourth Amendment. And if the government wants information about you, they should have to come to you. There's one way that is, is going to make it necessary for the government to come to you with a warrant, and that is if you have perfect end-to-end encryption. There are certain technologies that are out there that supposedly offer us end-to-end encryption of a fairly robust nature. We have politicians, including disappointingly Ted Cruz, who are opponents of allowing end-to-end encryption to be illegal. They want to make it illegal for Apple to sell me a phone that offers me end-to-end encryption and that offers me the promise that if I've got a password-protected iPhone, that the government cannot get in it and that Apple itself cannot get in it, right? You know, what's the significance of end-to-end encryption? The significance of end-to-end encryption today is that you are not sharing information with a third party. You're not sharing it with them. They don't have access to it because as it passes through their servers, it's encrypted in such a way that even they can't get at it. That's the beauty of end-to-end encryption, and the government hates it. Why? Because then the government is reduced to what it used to be, which is that they have to come back to you with a warrant 
based on probable cause and particularized suspicion. They don't want to have to do that. And I say, no, they should have to do that. And in fact, often in our phones, and the Supreme Court has observed this, and I've talked about this, in our phones is more personal data about us than in our entire house. If the government walked through our house, they would learn less about us than if they were able to look in our phones, right? Um, They want free access to that. They don't want to have to be bothered to get a warrant. And they should have to. They should have to. We should be entitled to this. And, you know, yeah, let's, they're offering end-to-end encryption. That is one way that you can ensure that the government would have to come to you. But end-to-end encryption needs to remain legal. And it would be even better if we could get rid of this third-party doctrine entirely. And even though the government could technologically try to get this data from the companies because you are sharing the information with them, the government wouldn't be entitled to. And the companies, companies know that we want them to keep our data private. Uh, I've gone around singing the praises of any company that stood up to the government. I still have proudly on my email signature, iPhone, comma, I defiant that you know, Apple is defiant against the government on this issue of privacy. And it's one of the reasons that I will continue to buy their products even when they want to donate money to AIDS in, in Africa. Yeah, I bought that one too because um, it's pretty. So in any event, that's my, my little rant about that. Um, in the chat room, there's a little bit of discussion. Yeah, some people seem to be saying, hey, we don't want, for, we, don't, uh, we don't wait for the NSA to tell us what's going on. He says, uh, Rob says, do you think that Snowden was overreacting? I've read subsequent stories in which Microsoft claimed it already had patches for these programs in its regular updates. And that Microsoft seems to be saying, hey, we don't wait for the NSA to tell us what's going on. Well, to some extent, I think that's true. But I also wonder how badly Microsoft is in the government's pocket. I mean, right now, Trump, you know, he he sort of implied to all the people in Silicon Valley, do things my way and we'll make life easy for you, but don't do things my way, right? So anything with respect to the government, I think that Microsoft is going to tread lightly and they might say, oh, oh, it's no big deal. We've got it under control. They also want to look that way. You know, they want to look good business-wise that they are ahead of the government. The government is usually pretty pathetic in terms of technology compared to the private sector. So if Microsoft actually was left vulnerable due to some people who were in the government, that would make them look like they weren't very good providers of of a service too. So it could be to save face that way. There's a, there's a variety of reasons that that they could be saying that. Um, So I've only got a few minutes here. I've, yeah, so I've, I've got, I got you the solution. Don't tread on my metadata. I did my little rant. There's an article on Fourth Amendment and no trespassing signs. In essence, as I understand it, you have to read through it. It's an Orrin Kerr piece. In essence, they're saying that Orrin Kerr is potentially better on privacy than the prevailing law with respect to trespassing signs and what sort of protection that they give you. You can put a trust, no trespassing sign on your property, and apparently the police would still have the right to come up onto your front porch, even if you put that there without a warrant. But 
potentially uh, Gorsuch, the most recent Supreme Court appointee, is in opposition to that. So that would be a good news sign for me because my concern with Gorsuch is, is he going to continue Scalia's tradition with respect to privacy? I hope that he does, that he continues along that path. But we'll talk about that more on, on a future show. Um, what do I want to leave you with? God, there's so many good things here. Uh, Cal Exit, he decided, the Cal Exit founder, he decided to go set, ho- set up home in Russia. He, he couldn't wait for California to become the dictatorship of his dreams. He had to do it right away. New York Times had an interesting piece. My daughter is not transgender. She's a tomboy. And it's about girls who don't seem to be playing along with the traditional roles of, of young girls. Teachers are approaching the parents, at least, maybe even the kids, and asking, oh, does she really identify as a boy? Maybe she identifies as a boy. And she's saying, no, 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 she's just a tomboy. Leave it alone. I am so glad that that did not happen to me when I was a kid because I was a total tomboy. A little bit of Milo, uh, just some humor. Bernini, check out Bernini. But I'll leave you with a quotation from Ayn Rand that I got out of Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal for my show today. And let me see if I can find it now because I've got about 90 seconds for you guys. Here's the test. Can I get to my Facebook profile in time? No, I'm not going to do it probably. I'm beating the clock here. I'm running. I post too many things. I'm scrolling down. Where is my quotation from Rand? Uh, Okay, the power that determines the establishment, the changes, the evolution, and the destruction of social systems is philosophy. The role of chance, accident, or tradition in this context is the same as their role in the life of the individual. Their power stands in inverse ratio to the power of a culture's or an individual's philosophical equipment and grows as philosophy collapses, end quote. That's from her essay, What is Capitalism? In Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. And for me, philosophical equipment really stood out. Expressing a philosophy, you know, having an express adherence to a philosophy is not enough. It's the philosophical equipment that saves you from the role of chance, accident, or tradition. That's what I got out of that quotation. Go check it out for yourself. See me at don'tletitgo.com, and I will talk to you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.